There is no reality right now where I think a donor can say, this is the way to defeat Trump and this is the way that we can win this. So that's why I feel like there's a, a kind of a darkness over this entire class of people where maybe they are, you know, moving on from discomfort to acceptance, where they realize that this goose is cooked and uh, now it's time to talk about helping Mitch McConnell in the Senate and sort of boring stuff like that. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, September 20th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about the tension between Donald Trump and one of his former allies, libertarian billionaire Peter Thiel. As Teddy explains, the relationship between the two men has grown frosty heading into the 2024 election. Teddy and I also discuss whether major Republican donors, once supportive of Ron DeSantis and other GOP hopefuls, are resigned to Trump being the Republican nominee once again. And later, Eric Gardner swings by to chat with Ben about Sam Bankman-Fried's legal defense strategy and whether he could blame the whole FTX disaster on his lawyers. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily. I am joined today by Teddy Schleifer to talk about big Republican money. And one fascinating nugget that you reported yesterday, Teddy, about none other than Peter Thiel. You've really been owning the Peter Thiel uh, beat this year. Your story on the failed, tragic oppo campaign against him uh, earlier this year was incredible. But what's going on with him and Donald Trump? You know, not all is well uh, in the Trump-Teal <laughs> bromance that never really was. So <laughs> earlier this year, Peter Teal gets a phone call from Donald Trump. Um, you know, not not every day that happens. And um, Trump and Teal don't really talk that frequently. I feel like, you know, I say bromance never was because these are two people who are not really uh, in each other's inner circle the way that has been depicted in the press. But we'll come back to that. Teal gets this call from Trump. And Trump is confused and, you know, maybe mildly angry because Peter Thiel has not spent any money to help elect Donald Trump. And Peter Thiel is sitting it out. And Donald Trump also knows that he did Peter Thiel quite a lot of favors in the year 2022 when Trump ended up endorsing both of Thiel's protégés who were running for the U.S. Senate, Blake Masters in Arizona, J.D. Vance in Ohio. Both of them won the Republican nominations. J.D. Vance won. And Trump played a huge role in, in kind of electing these people, at least as nominees. And isn't it time for Peter Thiel to repay the favor? Of course, the conversation was not that explicit. I'm, I'm dramatizing it here a little bit. You can't really do that. And it's not quite so mafioso style. But the call, which began as mildly uh, fractious, became very contentious by the end. And it, it has been a, a bit of a rupture between the two of them. 
because uh, Trump is upset um, and feels sort of screwed over by Peter Thiel for not doing a lot more to help Trump. Peter is planning to sit out the Republican presidential primary. Obviously, Trump seems to be, you know, doing fine, mm-hmm. <laughs> doing fine on his own. But this is uh, what people are talking about in Peter and Trump circles these days. Yeah, I mean, maybe not bros, but pretty. You know, their political trajectories uh, in terms of national fame are, are pretty aligned. I mean, they came up as rabble rousers. I mean, Peter Thiel was involved in sort of libertarianish politics for a while, but. He spoke at the Republican convention <laughs> in 2016. Sure. We were there. Um, so what does this mean functionally, though? I mean, like like you said, it's a, Trump doesn't, because of his small donor muscle, Trump doesn't really need a ton of money, although every every bit will, will be helpful. What does this mean practically? So I really think that Trump's financial health has, has sort of been overstated. I mean, the fact is uh, an enormous amount of, of kind of his, at least soft dollar money, has been going to finance the, the, the Trump uh, legal team or, you know, paying for uh, the legal teams of Trump allies, obviously unusual. You know, his his small dollar fundraising base delivers for him every time he's indicted. So if he keeps getting indicted, he'll keep kind of having uh, a hard dollar gusher of cash behind him. But like the reality is that like, this is not 2020 when there was kind of the Republican donor establishment that was forced to, to kind of help Trump. There are very few, uh, frankly, I can I can barely think of two hands worth, very few uh, Republican bundlers who are spending money on his behalf or, you know, encouraging their their friends to do so. So I actually think he's not really doing that well as a fundraiser right now. The caveat, you know, capital C caveat on all this is that he's doing totally fine in the polls. And there, there does not seem to be any relationship between kind of what Republican elites think and what Republican voters think. And, you know, if Trump has outspent gajillion dollars to one in the primary, like, who cares? I mean, I feel like, um, you know, Teal might say, and he's not wrong, like, what do you need my 10 million bucks for? Like, you know, like this, if you're going to win or you're going to lose, it's not going to be because of the money. Um, and, and Trump seems to obviously be running away with this thing. And uh, everyone else is, you know, fighting for fighting for scraps. But when you see someone like Ken Griffin say in an interview with CNBC today, as we're recording, that he's not even sure if DeSantis is his guy anymore, it just makes you feel like we're like debating, you know, the 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 subplot to the subplot to the subplot um, about which of these you know people polling at ten percent are gonna win the money race like who cares I mean this is this is I don't want to say it's kind of over but like it, you you do feel like the 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 donor universe is is uh, you know out to Mars and when it doesn't really matter what they think at any given moment yeah it's it's funny they one yeah the donor universe doesn't necessarily matter like the impulses of the Republican primary elected right now are with Trump. And, you know, if, you know, you've done some really good reporting on what all of these people think, but like, why is Larry Ellison giving so much money to Tim Scott? Like, why are these people giving money to Nikki Haley and, and Vivek? I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I, I guess I could get it six months ago, but now it's like, it feels like a lot of people in the Republican conservative donor world, other than like maybe like the club for growth or something are kind of hitting the brakes on putting up money to stop Trump because you know, if he's the nominee, like they got to, you know, they got to be on his dance card at some point. And Tommy Vitor made a good point about this on, on Pod Save America the other day. Like, I think he was going through some expenditures himself and he doesn't see a lot of just anti-Trump super PACs. Like you've got Never Back Down, which is the the Santis group, which is doing, you know, some anti-Trump stuff in Iowa and, and propping up uh, DeSantis. But like there's no concerted outside money effort to stop Trump either. 
you know, the donors have, you know, picked their chess players in the Republican primary, but like, wasn't Carl Rove supposed to line up a bunch of money to stop Trump at some point? Like that, that would mean a massive organized paid media campaign to stop him. That never came to fruition at all. So like our conservative slash Republican donors just, are they playing it safe? You know, hedging their bets? Well, Peter, there's, there's, there's a lot of op-eds. So, um, you know, you got that going for you. Um, you know, journal op-eds are really driving this, uh, driving the, uh, the Trump negative, Trump's favorables down to the, into the gutter. Look, I mean, the, the Republican donor universe has not really articulated uh, a clearer strategy for exactly how they're taking down Trump. I mean, there are two kind of nodes to this. One is the Koch network, which is running a, I would say, a soft anti-Trump field campaign. You know, they're doing some paid media, but you know, Tommy's correct. I mean, there's there's no some there's not like a secret, you know, forty million dollar ad campaign to to do so. Um, you know, the Club for Growth uh, is running some ads, but not a lot. Like like you're not missing something. The amount of money that has been you know as at the disposal of the people who supposedly want to take down Trump, you know, is not commensurate to the amount of money you're seeing on TV. I mean, the DeSantis Super PAC, you know, is running not you know they're not using all their money on paid media, um, and they're running you know some some negative ads, but this is not like the cavalry arriving to finally take him down. And to some extent, I wonder whether or not we have a little bit of a chicken and egg problem here, Peter, where the guy is, is up by 40 points. I mean, obviously, you know, these groups will all spend every every dollar they've got. But I, I, I wonder, you know, if this was if this was a 20 or 10 point race, whether the money would be there to turn it into, you know, a neck and neck race. It's hard to convince someone like Peter Thiel or 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 Ken Griffin or Steve Schwartzman that like, oh, if you put in 10 million more bucks, you know, this this race is is gonna be uh gonna be closer. And obviously that's an indictment of DeSantis himself for not making this a more competitive race, not making donors think harder about it. There's just a lot of nihilism right now when, when you talk with major contributors to the party or their advisors. You know, these are very smart people, blah, 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 all the right degrees, you know, helped elect George W. Bush in 2000. But like, whatever, there, there is not a very clear re- rationale for over the next, you know, five months about how exactly they're going to take down Trump. And like, I know I'm like making this extraordinarily simple, but it kind of is that simple. Like, what, what, what exactly will you use the money for to you know, make this guy not up by 40 points nationally or, you know, 30 points or 20 points in Iowa or whatever. Either the donors have to kind of invent that reality or, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis has to invent that reality. But like, there is no reality right now where I think a donor can say, this is the way to defeat Trump and this is the way that we can win this. So that's why I feel like there's a, a kind of a darkness over this entire class of people where maybe they are, you know, moving on from discomfort to acceptance where they realize that, this goose is cooked and, uh, you know, it's time to talk about helping Mitch McConnell in the Senate and sort of boring stuff like that. Well, just to bring this conversation back around, I mean, is, is Teal on that note done with political contributions generally? I mean, will he still get behind Senate candidates or is he just going to say peace out the cycle? Well, a, a huge question um, kind of coincidentally around the same time um, as this news is coming out is what's going to happen in Arizona where Blake Masters is has been on the cusp of kind of running again. We're recording this um, as, as this news is basically happening. I mean, Blake had been planning to run for much of this year. You know, I always hear from people that Blake was talking to about his plans. And then Kerry Lake has also sort of been inching toward a run. Um, there's a kind of a huge Republican primary that could be brewing between Kerry Lake and Blake Masters over the Arizona Senate seat. And I have no idea if Peter Thiel would kind of support Blake again. Thiel obviously helped launch 
uh, masters into the mainstream political conversation in the state. This is a guy who had no political experience beforehand or very little political experience, and Teal made him credible. Blake would start, obviously, with some name ID this time, but you know, I don't know if Peter wants to kind of be in, in the hurricane as much as he was in 2022 when you know he became um, a target for for Democratic political operatives, as you mentioned, Peter, but also you know became the treasure chest at the end of the rainbow for so many Republicans. So I think he wants to stay out of this state of politics more broadly. He has said publicly he's not going to spend money on presidential politics. Unclear if if, you, if there's a Blake Masters-sized exception, but um, I don't even know if Blake's going to run at this point because Carrie Lake looks pretty intimidating in a Republican primary in a state like that. Yeah, she has the uh, charisma <laughs> that Masters so sorely lacks, and and the support of Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Which um, you know, both both Lake and Masters had the support of Trump in 2022, but they're running for different offices in a one-on-one battle. Trump reportedly uh, is planning on you know whipping hard for Lake so much so that he called Blake Masters two weeks ago and told him not to run. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on right now. Well, if Blake sits it out, he still has his Walther PPK pistol with a silencer to play with. Uh, that, that creepy video he put out during the campaign. I can't, I'll never forget it. Thank you for that, Blake. <laughs> I, I, I remember, I remember you were a, a, a prominent uh, paid media critic of the Blake Masters campaign. I think you said he was like, it was like the worst, it was like one of the worst campaigns you'd ever seen or something like that. Did I say that? I don't, I don't think I did. I don't, I didn't like follow it that intensely to have that strong of an opinion. Maybe there's some other Peter out there. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Teddy, thank you so much for your insight as always, man. You really own this beat. You bet. When we come back, Eric Gardner's here to talk about Sam Bankman Freed's legal strategy. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, the gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy. And eating better is easy with Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factors restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are are pancakes i love pancakes more than waffles more than french toast a couple of my favorites so far the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites i love egg bites discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast midday bites and more no prep no mess meals factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed so sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off. 
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner to talk about the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, which starts in about two weeks. Eric, I wanted to have you on today because you had some great new reporting this week on a couple of the defense strategies that Bankman-Fried is looks like he's, he's going to use. Let's start with the jury selection process. What kind of jurors are the prosecutors in the defense trying to weed out in this first week? Sure. Well, you know, the object of what's called voir dire is to find jurors who can be impartial. And as part of that process, both sides, you know, talk about the questions that they're going to ask to figure out which jurors would be appropriate to to hear. Now, this is an interesting case, obviously, because it's gotten a lot of publicity. So the the questions have to be a little bit more delicate. But you see back and forth uh, on on specific points. For example, Sam Beckman-Fried, you know, his attorneys, you know, put across a list of questions that included things like, you know, have you ever heard of uh, effective altruism, which is, you know, SBF's uh, trademark brand of charity. And the uh, the prosecutors say, hey, uh, you know, we don't want that being mentioned here because that might, you know, paint uh, this guy in a sympathetic light, you know, and jurors, prospective jurors might get the wrong impression that he was, you know, uh, out to save the world. Uh, so they don't want any narratives being advanced during this whole jury selection process. So they, they're, you know, they've expressed their concern to the judge about specific lines of questioning. Overall, though, I would say that that Sam Bankman frieds attorneys, they want to find people who are not so familiar with this case or people who at least can express uh, some sort of open-mindedness about this whole situation, people who may be skeptical of, of government Whereas the, the the prosecutors, they're you know a little bit more looser about about this sort of thing. They they generally you know just favor you know anyone who you know comes and if they've been shown some of these stories about about the scandal, uh, that's that's okay because obviously you know most of the stories in the past year have been sympathetic to uh, the government's case. You also wrote that the defense strategy is basically to point fingers at everyone, but. SBF. They're basically, they want to blame fellow executives for ignoring his nudges to them to to check out risk management, make sure we're not going to blow up this company. They want to blame regulators for not making it clear where these guardrails should be. Uh, he wants to blame his lawyers potentially as one of the defenses that we're looking at. And even sort of blaming the larger crypto culture, essentially arguing that he wasn't doing anything that everyone else wasn't doing themselves. Eric, which of those arguments do you find most compelling, either for yourself individually or, or most compelling to a jury? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, the judge is going to have some decisions to make about how much latitude uh, Beckman Freed gets in articulating these theories and, you know, pointing the blame towards others. So there's there's still a lot of decisions to come before trial about about whether, for instance, he can point to the larger crypto culture to some respects, uh, you know, I understand the position. The, it, the crypto culture was kind of like the wild west out there, and you know, nobody had a firm idea of you know what the rules of the road are. You know, he's going to argue something along the lines of, you know, well, you go to the bank, you put your money in the bank, and you know, you don't have any expectation that the that the bank is going to keep the money there. 
the money is going to you know flow and be invested elsewhere and then eventually it'll come back to you the difference is that the banks are a very regulated environment whereas the the crypto world uh you know wasn't a particularly regulated environment now you know he says that you know because it wasn't regulated the rules of the road uh weren't firmly in place and so he didn't have the criminal intent to to really you know go out there and steal people's money what he he thought he was doing was was basically acting like a bank and given more time you know he would have returned the money at least in his mind that's what he's going to be arguing to the into to the jury. We'll see if the judge allows that. I'm not sure I find that very persuasive. As for the arguments about the lawyers, uh, it runs something along the lines of there were very sophisticated lawyers who were present during all of these events at, at FTX, and he was relying on their uh, good counsel. If they gave him bad advice, he was you know being naive in the process and he didn't have criminal intent there either. I think that's a little bit more compelling, but the problem with that argument is that you need to really back that up with evidence that 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 these lawyers were given all sorts of information about what he was up to. He had to have disclosed everything that he was opening up bank accounts for, you know, the purpose of loan agreements and, and all that. And if at the end of the day, they still advised him that this was okay, then then sure, then then maybe some sort of advice of counsel defense works. But I'm a little skeptical of that because I'm not sure whether he has uh, the particular evidence to to back that up. So I, you know, I think these sorts of things can give him a little bit of leeway. And what he needs to do really is not necessarily to convince everyone, but just to find one or two jurors there, plant some seeds of doubt and, and you know, maybe, you know, throw some, throw some sand in the gears of what the prosecution's out to do. Yeah. The advice of counsel defense does seem really high risk. I mean, in the end, aren't you just going to end up putting a bunch of angry, highly sophisticated lawyers and counterparties on the stand. I mean, you're going to inevitably have these lawyers from um, from Fenwick and West or FTX's own internal house counsel on the stand, and they're going to want to twist things back around and put the blame on SBF. They're not going to want to take the fall for this. I mean, these are smart, sophisticated men and women. Do you think that could backfire if they're able to actually go forward with that strategy? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the biggest, uh, you know, uh, impediment to to something along this lines. I mean, usually, attorney-client privilege gets in the way of lawyers testifying against you, uh, even when the attorney-client privilege might not be for. Beckman Free, but rather for the company, still lawyers are going to be very careful about coming forward and testifying, especially with civil lawsuits out there hanging uh, over their heads and you know potential liability and everything like that. But if he's testifying that you know it were it was these lawyers' fault, these lawyers are going to want to you know push back on that and say we didn't know everything, and you know had we known some this, we would have advised much differently. And that's very very compelling evidence. Uh, you, ha- you have people who are materially involved in this. They know the law, and you know they're probably good speakers. And they're going to, you know, basically make a very powerful case against him. So uh, I think that you know Sam Bankman-Fried and his attorneys are going to be very, very careful uh, when it comes to the advice of counsel defense. I think that they may invoke it for for small things, like you know, if prosecutors say he, uh, you know, set policies to delete 
uh, evidence at the company. You know, they were using uh, ephemeral messaging apps and they were all set to auto delete and everything like that. And prosecutors suggest that he did that with some sort of criminal intent. Then he might come forward and say, well, you know, that that was something that we checked with counsel about and, and counsel signed off on it. And so maybe for little small points like that, they, they might use it. But overall, it's a, it's certainly a risky strategy. And I'm curious to see how far it goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm surprised that this case is moving forward at all. I mean, listeners have to remember that SBF's top lieutenants, his ex-girlfriend, his best friends in the company who were co-executives with him, they have all already pleaded guilty. They have taken deals. They are likely going to be providing testimony against him. And to the extent that he's going to go out and blame the wider crypto culture, I mean, there are a number of other crypto founders and CEOs who have now been prosecuted in the last 12 months. We've seen people go to jail. We've seen other people who are, are essentially international fugitives on the run. I mean, the, the founder of Binance is living in Dubai, maybe because it's fun, but I think also because they, they don't have an extradition treaty with the United States, which uh, would probably like to have a couple words with him. So I don't know how much leeway he's got with that argument either. Yeah, I think the judge is going to limit it. I, I don't think the judge is going to let uh, Sam Beckman free get away with, you know, just some large presentation about, you know, how he he existed in this nebulous world and everyone was doing it and and therefore, you know, he had some license to to act inappropriately. I, I think especially this judge. I mean, from from every you know hearing I've attended, he seems to, you know, be very skeptical of Bankman Fried's arguments. Uh, this is the same judge who, you know, uh, revoked his bail and put put him back in detention. And as we're speaking, an appeals court right now is is hearing arguments about whether to free uh, Sam Bankman Fried pending this trial. I just think that that if people are going into this trial expecting to hear some larger case about crypto and you know the sins of, of the industry at large i think they're going to be disappointed I, th- I think it's 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 going to be very restricted to sam bankman fried and what he did now that's not to say that that you know what happens to him won't have implications elsewhere i i certainly expect that the uh, ceo of binance and you know a lot of other uh, figures in the in the crypto industry will be watching this very carefully um because yeah i mean I mean, it, they certainly could be in a situation like this uh, in the future. And, you know, I, I'm not like 100% sure that, that this case will go into the trial. There's always the, the possibility that that there's, that there's a last second plea and Sam Beckman freed, you know, and, you know, pleads guilty in return for cooperation against others. So, uh, so you know, I, there's, there's a lot of dynamics at play here. And, uh, you know, it's going to be really fascinating in a couple of weeks to see how this all plays out. Yeah, it definitely will be. Trial starts October 3rd, if it happens at all. But either way, we'll be covering it all here at Puck. Eric, thanks as always for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.